listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. This week we have a returning guest at Affect Autism. Dave Nelson is a licensed professional counselor, a DIR expert training leader, and executive administrative director of the community school in Atlanta, Georgia. He's here to discuss puberty and all of the changes that come when we're parenting or working with teens, the emotional swings, the raging hormones, the sexual development, and how we can best support these youth in a respectful way using a developmental approach. So welcome back, Dave. Thanks, and thanks so much for having me. This is, I think, such an important topic to talk about. It's one that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, so it maybe doesn't get talked about as much as it should, but I'm, I'm happy to be here to, uh, yeah, to try to bring it more to the forefront. Well, it's really interesting you say that because uh, our son is nine and a half, and um, I've avoided all topics about adolescence um, and sexuality and, and everything that I see coming in my email all the time. I always see workshops about it, and I thought, that's not my issue. My son's still young. I don't have to worry about that yet. I don't even want to think about it. And then recently, I took the floor time with adults course through ICDL. And you presented this topic, and I was just like, wow, okay, this makes so much sense. Everything that you talk about in um, to do with floor time, it's just a continuation of the developmental trajectory. And I just thought, I have to do a podcast with you about this because it's such good information for parents that I think isn't really readily available because a lot of people deal with so many of these challenges in a behavioral way. And this is such, um, it's a more respectful approach. And I'm really looking forward to getting into that. So thank you for doing that. Well, to just comment on what you said, I think it's totally understandable for parents of young kids um, and young kids with challenges to, to maybe not be thinking about this or not want to take this on because you got plenty to be thinking about and supporting uh, in early childhood. And if you can not think about the things that are coming up in adolescence for a while, that makes perfect sense. At the same time, I think you can help your child and help your family's functioning by beginning to think about and frame these issues early on so that you aren't playing catch up or, you know, trying to um, figure out a whole set of complex ideas, you know, once your child has started to go into puberty or is dealing with actual, you know, sexually active behaviors. Uh, so the earlier people can think about it, the better, but I totally understand there's a lot going on. So it's not always at the top of the list early on. Absolutely. And the last thing I want to think about is sexual behaviors with my little guy. But I will say that um, seeing your your course and, and what you'll present to us today uh, really made me feel equipped and as a parent, being able to handle whatever whatever comes and and knowing floor time and and having that confidence is so important. So um, shall we get into it? Sure, definitely. You can go ahead and bring up that first slide if you like. All right. I'll so, let you take it away. Okay, great. So, um, you know, sort of picking up on uh, the comments that we were making at the beginning, I think um, while there are lots of 
concrete things to do or concrete things to think about. And we'll, and we'll talk about some of those today. I think also what's so brilliant about the DIR construct and, and floor time as an idea is that it really gives us a way to think about issues and a way to approach issues because we're just not always going to have uh, the specific answer to every problem that comes up, or we're not going to know what to do in advance. And this developmental framework, I think, really helps us start to think about issues in an anticipatory way uh, and so that we don't have to just be uh, reactive as well, so that we can sort of be putting things in a larger context uh, and helping the people that we're supporting think about their development in a more big picture kind of way. But talking about sexual development particularly and the onset of puberty and everything that comes along with that, uh, I want to talk about uh, three core ideas that really, uh, that really, um, yeah, why it matters. These three reasons why it matters. We'll also touch on why this topic is challenging. I think it's pretty self-evident why it's challenging to deal with supporting sexual development. Uh, and I want to touch on this idea of why we have to get better. I really think there's almost a moral imperative behind this that um, as we are supporting people on the spectrum and people with challenges who are becoming adults. And as we're getting better at understanding uh, the importance of self-advocacy and autonomy for the people that we support, uh, sexual identity becomes a really important part of that. We want to help people become as autonomous uh, as they possibly can and get as much uh, joy and fulfillment out of life. And sexuality is a part of that. Uh, I also want to talk about some of the individual differences and developmental constrictions that affect sexuality. And again, I think it's a great, um, this is a great place to apply the DIR model because it really helps us think in very concrete ways about how somebody's profile affects their sexual development. Uh, and we'll talk about some specific case examples as we go along. And certainly, Daria, you should ask questions as, as we go along here. But let's talk about these three core ideas. So, the first, which, uh, you know, for those of you that are familiar with the DIR model, um, is that an understanding of somebody's individual differences and their functional emotional capacities, those things can really affect the sexual development and education process. And what I mean by individual differences, uh, in brief, is how our bodies experience the world. Everybody's body manages the world differently, whether it's sensory reactivity or information processing. Uh, and we also all are raised in different families with different cultural influences and different morals and values. And all of those differences really affect our sexual development and how we can support people in their sexual development. And with respect to functional emotional capacities, uh, what I mean by that is how how easily and comfortably we are able to engage with others, how interactive we are, how good our ability to, pro to engage in social problem solving and to engage in logical thinking, all of those things affect our ability to manage sexual development. And as I think you know, puberty happens and sexual maturity happens even when the rest of our systems are not maturing at the same rate. A second core idea, um, and these are not really in order of importance, and I might argue that this is the most important one, is that it's really important to reduce the risk of people being either victims or perpetrators of sexual mistreatment. And 
through the work that I've done over the years with adolescents and adults, sometimes there's a really fine line between victimhood and uh, being a perpetrator. People can inadvertently uh, become perpetrators and not know it. And I'm averse to fear stories, but I went to a presentation a couple of years ago uh, given by a lawyer who works in this area. And he told a story about um, a 12-year-old kid on the spectrum who was on a school bus, and he ended up beginning to stimulate himself, basically to masturbate on the bus. He didn't take his clothes off or anything. And the kid ended up um, being at risk of being charged with 20 counts of um, sexual molestation because it was a count for every kid that was on the bus. So here was a guy that was minding his own business, um, trying to manage his own sexuality and having limited ability to do so. And he really was both victimized and a perpetrator at the same time. And while I think that's maybe an unnecessarily scary story, I think it also really points out the risk that people are at in this domain because it's such a sensitive topic. Um, and And the third core idea is really just how to help people around the individuals we support become effective supports to an individual's sexual development. Um, it's more challenging because people don't want to talk about it. The individual doesn't always want to talk about it. The individual doesn't always want to get a lot of support. So how to help the people around in you know, the community, the individual's community, be an effective support, I think, is really key. Okay, why is it challenging? Again, I think this is kind of obvious, but I'll, I'll go through these a little bit. Um, there are just so many taboos around sexuality. Um, we aren't comfortable talking about sex. And, you know, I'm sure it varies from culture to culture and country to country. Um, but it's obvious that sex is such a complex topic that's intertwined with our values. And, um, you know, just like any other controversial subject from, you know, in the, in the world of, of politics, you know, or morality, um, not everybody feels the same way about sex, right down to the level of how much we should be talking about it, or what things we should be educating people around. Um, and so in that context, the risk of making a mistake seems high. What if we do it wrong? What if we cross somebody's values? What if we teach somebody the wrong way? Uh, so that risk of diving into that topic seems very high, which leads us to, to tend to avoid it. And finally, and maybe most importantly, discussing these ideas requires a lot of complex language and an ability to know oneself to a certain extent. Uh, so many of the people I have worked with over the years don't even really do a great job of connecting their physicality, their physical feelings to ideas that's really a developmental capacity to be able to know what you feel, much less to begin to control the behaviors that come from those feelings. So that ability to reflect if that's constricted in any way, um, or you have language processing challenges, or you just struggle with complex ideas, then it's going to make sexuality a really difficult thing to to address uh, in any kind of sophisticated way. Why we have to get better at it, I think there's both some very kind of uh, concrete legalistic reasons to get better, but there's also kind of a philosophical, moral reason to get better. One, sexuality is an essential part of being human. And if, in fact, 
we are trying to help people become their best selves to function at the highest level of independence that they can to have the most happiness that they can. Um, then it's really incumbent upon a caregiver or a support team to support an individual's ability to understand those feelings and experience complete relationships as much as possible. Um, you know, the more concrete legalistic thing is that the risks of not supporting sexuality are greater than the risks of doing it wrong. People can get arrested. People can get rejected severely. People can get hurt in really significant ways. Um, but I think for me, what's more important is this idea that as we get better at understanding that we were help, that we are helping people to become the people that they can be, not the people we want them to be, then that does demand that we support people in expressing themselves sexually, even if we're not always entirely comfortable with how that expression might look. Um, and, you know, we could take a, a left turn down into sort of a culture war uh, path to talk about, you know, the increasing range of expression of gender identities and sexual identities that we see in the world. And I don't think we really need to do that here. But I think that's, I think it's relevant that helping people on the autistic spectrum understand how they can express themselves sexually is a really important thing to do. Okay, so let's kind of get down into the nitty gritty. And this, I think, uh, this slide sort of sums it all up. Puberty is going to happen no matter what. Um, and, you know, it already happens at, within a pretty wide age range anyway. My practical experience with working with people on the spectrum, and I don't honestly know if this is backed up by data, but is that puberty feels like it tends to happen even earlier um, in people on the spectrum. Um, but at whatever age it happens, our bodies evolve even if our other systems haven't caught up. So somebody who has a very limited ability to think in complex terms or to communicate they're still going to go through puberty. Their bodies are going to change. Their voices are going to drop. The hair is going to grow. Their sweat glands are going to develop. They're going to begin to get erections and be in, interested in, in various forms of sexual stimulation. And that's going to happen no matter what. So within that context, uh, and I realize this is a big ask, it helps to be willing to talk openly and frequently about issues of sexuality. And what I'll say for myself is, you know, I've been talking about this um, for years and working with adolescents and young adults for years. And I have raised two uh, sons, uh, one of them on the spectrum, who's now almost 30 years old. And it's still not comfortable. I don't like talking openly and frequently about issues of sexuality. You know, I have to sort of gird myself to do it um, because it's a personal, delicate subject. So, um, you know, I accept that this is a big ask, but it's really, really important. And the more open that we can be, particularly with people on the spectrum, and I'm averse to generalizing about people on the spectrum, but particularly to a group of people who in general benefit from uh, having people communicate openly, directly, and completely with them. Uh, that's, I think, a really important thing. So, um, the, the, you know, the biggest challenge for caregivers, I think, is to be willing to open that door and, and go through into that room. 
Okay, so let's shift and talk about some of the specific individual differences that can affect sexuality. And uh, again, hopefully for those of you that are familiar with uh, the DIR framework, this will make a lot of sense. Uh, I remember when I first started beginning to think about this, it just, it felt like light bulbs were just coming on left and right because it just makes so much sense. You know, and even just this first bullet point, this this basic idea that um, if your if your sensory processing system is unusual or extreme in some way, either underreactive or overreactive, that's obviously going to affect how your sexuality develops, what kinds of sensations you seek out, uh, what kinds of uh, sensations you avoid, uh, and how you try to meet those particular needs. So, um, and how I, I don't yet want to end up becoming needlessly graphic in this presentation, but just to give you a couple of examples, um, for people who have a lot of variety in their sensory arousal and reactivity, you might see people who, um, when they're trying to figure out how to masturbate, stimulate themselves too aggressively and end up hurting themselves physically, or people who don't seem to be able to uh, reach an orgasm because they can't stimulate themselves enough. Uh, I recently have been working with a, a, a young female, an adolescent female, who is trying to stimulate herself uh, like multiple times a day for extended periods of time. And it's a real challenge to uh, support her in that. But it's also, I think, a lot of what's happening is a function of her particular sensory profile and how she is experiencing sensation. So just, you know, right out of the gate, how your sensory systems work really can affect um, your sexual activity and your sexual expression. Uh, one other Example and, and can I jump in for one second? Yeah, please do. Just just for the listeners, um, so we're we're going to get into some examples and and how the intervention around this DIR developmental individual differences relationship based model around it looks. It'll make more sense because uh, some of the things I imagine if I had heard some of the things you've already said for the first time. I'd be panicking. I'd be cringing. Some of the listeners might be cringing right now saying, I don't want my kids to do any of that. <laughs> and what I, I encourage the listeners to listen as we go forward, because um, it's, it's really going to help you understand how to support the child's development. So I just wanted to jump in there with that. Sorry. Well, and it's a, and it's a good point. And I think it's, it, um, yeah, I appreciate the reminder that, you know, a lot of the work that I do is with people who are, uh, some of them who are just coming into puberty, some of them who are deep into puberty, and some of them who are adult, actively, you know, active sexual beings. And so, yeah, for those of you who are barely kind of conceptualizing or thinking about this stuff, yeah, then obviously it can feel pretty overwhelming. And I don't mean to to overwhelm in that regard. But at a, at a more basic level, I think it's just really important to think that how your physical body experiences the world is going to have a lot to do with the sensations that you seek out and the sensations that you avoid. Um, so even thinking about more basic things like 
physical touch or hand holding or uh, kissing or all of the things that care, the kinds of um, love behaviors that caregivers and their children engage in. And, you, you know, you probably know your own child very well in this regard uh, that some people seek out intense, deep pressure and love, you know, being squeezed between crash cushions and getting hugs and others don't want to be touched in certain ways at all. So you can imagine how that's going to affect somebody's uh, development as they move into the area of adult relationships or, or, you know, manage sexual arousal as that begins to happen. So another difference that's really worth paying attention to is, is motor planning and sequencing. Um, and again, think about everything from, um, well, and maybe let me back up and say that a lot of how we as humans express ourselves sexually is in the context of relationships. Uh, that's not entirely true, but certainly what we like to think about, and I think culturally what, what we move towards is the idea that you know, we get connected to each other in meaningful relationships, and then sexuality gets expressed within the context of that relationship. So whether you're talking about people who are actually sexually active versus just developing intimate relationships uh, with other people, all of these things still apply. Uh, so motor planning and sequencing is going to have a lot of effect on how people manage personal space, how they move to touch somebody or be close to somebody and how those behaviors might be interpreted as aggressive versus, um, versus welcome, you know, welcoming and friendly, uh, related to that visual spatial processing, just how we navigate the three dimensional world really has a big effect on our ability to, um, to engage in the physical process of relationship building. Uh, something else that uh, a lot of people on the spectrum uh, struggle with are, uh, you know, reading and processing cues, both social cues and environmental cues rapidly enough, being able to read rapid nonverbal signaling from other people. Uh, and again, thinking more in terms of relationship development and relationship support as opposed to sexuality, particularly uh, somebody who is struggling to uh, to read those cues accurately and rapidly is going to have difficulty developing relationships that then allow for a healthy expression of sexuality when it gets to that. So can I give a quick example? Because if I, you might be giving this example later, but this uh, really brought the point home for me is when you mentioned that maybe um, a young male who's coming into sexual arousing feelings might you might see him at at school constantly staring at a woman's breasts maybe one of the teachers or something like that that's really inappropriate because they might be staring for a long time and they might miss the social cues that the teacher might give them that look like stop looking at me like that um so these are the types of things that you're talking about and we're going to talk about how you approach those from the dir model is that correct Sure. Well, and I'll give you another example. And again, now I'm, I, I, I'm anxious about scaring everybody half to death. <laughs> but uh, we work uh, a couple of years ago, we worked with a young man who was attending college and he was at a four year school and academically and in a lot of ways doing very well. Um, and he ended up running into difficulty. Uh, he got, I don't know another way to say it, then he got into trouble with the administration because 
um, several young women perceived that he was stalking them uh, because he was doing exactly what you're saying. He was sitting in the cafeteria. He was staring at them. He wasn't, uh, yeah, he wasn't noticing that they were uncomfortable with the ways in which he was looking at these people. And ultimately when it got to the point where he was looking through an exterior window at them, uh, that's when they got uncomfortable to the point that they called in some outside help. And he was unaware of the negative effect he was having. So he was really missing a lot of the cues. His intentions were completely um, benign or gentle or positive, but he ended up getting himself into a sticky situation because of that. Um, and that leads right into that next point and over under focus on aspects of a situation, which is to say, uh, not being able to hold the big picture, not seeing everything that's going on. And I think you can see this at every age and stage, um, you know, in young children, when you see young kids who are really excited about uh, seeing somebody that they know or like, they may uh, not be able to uh, manage all the other social cues. So for example, a child who gets really excited and just runs and hugs somebody uh, and won't let go and doesn't, doesn't pay attention to the fact that anybody else is also trying to connect with this person. Um, or as you get older, somebody who is so focused on the smell of another person's hair that they're smelling their hair without noticing the effect that that's having on that person. So there's a lot of ways in which that not being able to hold the big picture really comes into play. And that, that goes back to that, um, the individual differences in the sensory processing. If, if that particular child has a sensitivity to smells and they're craving different smells, that's one thing they might do is, you know, wander up and, and right. smell a person's hair. And, and we overlook these things when children are little because we accept little kids do things and, and it's easy to overlook, but when they start to be 12, 13, 14, that's when it starts to become inappropriate. And that's why uh, this podcast, I think, is so important, because I believe we're getting into that next, is how do we support the children through this? Because, like you said, it's not intentional on their part, and we understand that as the parent, as the therapist, as the person who knows the child well, but the rest of the world won't understand that if you go to aunt lucy's house and you're staring at her breasts all day or something like that that that's where the support's going to come in well and let's let's stay on that for for just a second i think that um as somebody who has worked with this you know in this dir framework for a long period of time um it is certainly true that we encounter challenges all the time with um managing behaviors. You know, how do you help somebody manage the way they act, whether it's running out into the street without looking uh, or, um, you know, saying or doing things that somehow aren't socially typical or socially accepted or whatever it happens to be. You know, so as a DIR practitioner, we're, I think, really always trying to focus on strengthening the underlying developmental capacities so that the downstream effects are uh, the improvement of behavior, that we're not mostly trying to stop people from doing these specific behaviors. Um, again, realistically, sometimes you have to stop people from running into the street or you have to stop people from trying to hit somebody else or whatever it happens to be. But for the most part, we want to be strengthening somebody's developmental capacities so that they can, over time, begin to self-regulate and self-manage. 
uh, I think that is that is a moral imperative to help people be as autonomous as they can be. Um, it's also what allows people to be as independent as they can be from caregivers, from their parents or from other caregivers. Uh, because if you can help somebody get to the point where they're able to manage their own emotions, manage their own sensations, and self-manage their behavior, self-correct their behavior, that's going to be a lot more successful. Um, the trouble with puberty is that it's it's kind of a tidal wave of all of those things. You know, your puberty is hitting people at their most vulnerable time when they don't have a lot of, um, yeah, our brains are, are, you know, just in the beginning stages of maturation when they're 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. And then we get hit with a lot of hormones and chemicals and new ways of understanding human relationships. And so it's a, yeah, it's kind of a tsunami of experience for uh, people. Uh, so I do think what this model does well is helps us stay focused on always strengthening the capacities, even if we are having to manage behavior in some, um, you know, some restrictive ways that really what we're trying to do is help people get better at managing their own behavior. Because at some point, uh, people are going to be out in the world trying to manage their own experience. And that's, what's going to help them not only be safe and not get into trouble, but also to be able to have meaningful, successful relationships. Uh, so just to touch on that last bullet point, poor emotional regulation. Uh, again, we all as, you know, probably all of us through adolescence had really variable emotional regulation. But if you're somebody who really feels emotions intensely, you tend to go to the extremes of feeling, then it's going to make your ability to connect with people uh, romantically or physically or sexually that much more challenging uh, because of the variability. Definitely. And um, I can say that we're really noticing what you said about strengthening those early developmental capacities. That's really the key because you can do that before puberty hits. And I can't even begin to tell you the amount of changes we've seen in our son, like even in the last two months, six months, just it's just incredible we're seeing this unfold before our eyes where he's really starting to get it and he's starting to be able to um recognize that he might be um dysregulated and he's starting to be able to self-regulate a little bit it's it's a slow process but to see the developmental growth in him through those uh, functional, emotional, developmental capacities has really just been incredible. It's been like the theory I learned a few years ago, and I'm watching it unfold. And and I think the, the more that we think about that, as opposed to the other stuff that you're saying, that's all scary stuff. It's, right. it's strengthening those capacities so that and like you said, we can focus on the behavior all the time, but really it's focusing on the development that will help manage the behavioral outbursts. Our, our son rarely has meltdowns anymore. He, right. he almost never has meltdowns anymore, but he'll get very dysregulated a lot. But just seeing that change is so important. Right. Well, and, you know, I think one of the things that maybe um, is is always a good reframe to put on this material is that you know, this is as much about somebody's ability to develop relationships as it is to to express themselves sexually or in terms of their sexual identity. Because all of these things, 
we're kind of talking about it through the lens of um, sex and sexuality, which does feel controversial and intimate and, and uncomfortable. But, you know, again, this is really about how people connect and relate to each other. And you are, we, all of us as caregivers or interventionists are trying to support all of the people that we work with in getting better at building and maintaining relationships. And the better we are at maintaining relationships, the more context there's going to be for these specifically specific sexuality pieces coming into play. It'll just make more sense so that we're not just trying to manage, you know, this, this set of, you know, raging hormones. It's we're actually helping somebody to use that, their ability to build relationships with people to find a, a context for that, for those. Yeah stronger physical feelings. Definitely. And I really do want to get to the intervention slides and the core ideas. Um, everything in here is so important, but maybe um, can we, should we skip the slide or do you want to just touch on it briefly? Or? Let me just touch on it briefly. I think okay. most of this should, should make sense at this point. But whereas before we were talking about just kind of how your body, the experience of your body is going to affect sexual development. Um, this slide is really meant to capture the when people are struggling in their ability to think and communicate and relate and problem solve, those, those aspects are really going to affect our relationship development and our sexuality expression as well. So when we tend to be more focused on rule-based functioning, when we tend to be more black and white in our thinking, when we aren't good social problem solvers, that's going to make it really hard to connect with people, to flirt with people, to meet people, to develop potentially romantic relationships with people, and then to figure out how to express ourselves in gradually more physically overt ways. Uh, because, you know, it's hard enough to come up with a meaningful rule for how to get through an intersection, you know, the, the with, you know, what are all the rules of going through an intersection? But then you say, well, what are all the rules in developing a meaningful, intimate relationship with somebody? There's just an infinite number of, um, yeah, potentialities there that make it very, very difficult. So the less subtle or gray area somebody's thinking is, the less fluid their ability to um, engage in social problem solving, the harder it's going to be to express their sexuality in successful ways. Okay, so, uh, and we can do this a little differently if you want, but so, you, you know, what I wanted to do is kind of dig into the interventions built around these core ideas. And the first idea being how this understanding of individual differences and, and emotional capacities can affect the sexual development and education processes. Uh, so these cases are... Um, uh, examples from my work, people uh, or amalgams of people that, you know, I actually know and have worked with. Uh, and what, what I like to do in terms of thinking about people is, um, and I'll give you some specific, you know, examples of situations that people have been in. But what I want you to think about in terms of interventions is that there's really kind of three phases to the intervention. There's what you do before the point of crisis happens, which is kind of what you're doing to support healthy developmental growth uh, and to educate and support people. There's what you sometimes need to do in the heat of the moment when the, when the difficult thing is happening. 
And then there's what you do after the fact, you know, how do you, how do you debrief? How do you recover? What do you do moving forward? Uh, and you know, there's no slam dunk good answer for what to do at any of those points, but I find it really helpful to think about that. There's what you're doing all the time. There's what you're doing in the middle of crisis. And then there's how you debrief and recover. So this particular example, uh, just a, uh, a young man who, um, I have known to be, you know, very warm, very, um, engageable, uh, really playful, but, um, not a lot of impulse control, not a lot of ability to express himself with language. Um, and you know, this is, this is the guy who, um, we were sort of alluding to in a general sense earlier. This is the kind of guy who's going to get fixated on, people in his environment and maybe engage in behaviors that those people find uncomfortable. So smelling their hair, staring at their breasts, touching people without being aware of the context of that. Um, so in this particular case, his sexuality had clearly emerged before his readiness for complex relationships. And so how he was tending to express himself was with a lot of excessive staring, a lot of standing too close to people, a lot of, um, smelling people's hair or touching, uh, you know, their clothes or different parts of their bodies in this particular context. And I work in a, in a school type of setting. Um, he was tending to get stuck on, uh, older females in his environment. So, uh, getting, developing crushes on teachers or mothers of other, uh, participants in our program. And at the same time, he really didn't have a lot of, uh, sexuality knowledge based on, you know, our understanding of his family and his family culture. This is not something he really um, had had the opportunity to address or think about. And to be fair, it probably would have been hard to figure out how to support him in this knowledge. So the risks here for this particular guy, maybe not the most extreme risks, but certainly the potential to get into trouble with that staring and touching. And, and when those things are happening, happening in a context where people don't understand who this young man is or what his capacities are, uh, that could be even more serious. But then I think the risk to, to, to this individual is that frustration and confusion and sense of failure or shame that come from being corrected so often or being chastised or being, um, told not to do something. Um, so, yeah, so this presenting issue here was this kind of staring, touching, space invading kind of person. So, uh, so talking specifically about how to support somebody like this, the beforehand, um, and in this case, kind of a relatively simple idea, the beforehand is floor time. Uh, you know, a lot of play-based interaction with this guy to not only help him get better at reading social cues, um, but also to help him get better at beginning to manage his impulses. So for example, um, you know, even playing a game of, um, you know, some sort of tickling game or a, a hide and seek or a peekaboo type game can help somebody with impulse control. So you're allowing somebody to do something, but then you're stopping them so that they have to pause. So they have to want something, but not get it right away. So a lot of stop and start kinds of games. Uh, you may remember things like, uh, mother, may I, uh, red light, green light, where you're just, you know, you have, 
uh, people running across the floor and you stop them and have them start and you stop them and have them start, those kinds of games can really strengthen somebody's ability to manage their impulses. Because what you're doing is getting somebody to want something, but have to stop for a minute to wait before they can get it. Does that make sense? That idea of uh, just play-based interactive behaviors to support both impulse control and an understanding of personal space. Okay, so then the thing is happening. Uh, The staring is happening, the invasion is happening, the touching is happening, and the kind of uh, obsession sounds too strong, but the the expression of the crush is happening. You know, what do you do during those times? Um, The trick is, I think, to both, and this is the trick of parenting. I don't think this has anything to do with being on the spectrum, and this doesn't have anything to do with sexuality. The trick of parenting is how do we set firm limits while remaining compassionate and connected to our children or to the people that we're working with. It's really hard. And when the behaviors are annoying, it's even harder, you know, or when we feel personally threatened ourselves, it's harder. But I think, yeah, if you come away with nothing else, I think that's a really strong idea is to figure out how to set firm limits without disconnecting from the compassion and the basic belief that the person you're supporting is a good uh, person. So on those invasive behaviors, you want to set firm limits. You can stop somebody from touching or staring. um, And at the same time, be trying to frame that for somebody uh, so that you're not invalidating the feeling that they're having um, uh, or, you know, making them feel ashamed for that. Uh, So, part of that process is helping them connect those thoughts and feelings and actions to each other, but also alerting somebody to the reactions of others. Uh, So you're normalizing the feelings. You're saying, wow, it looks like you really like this person and they seem to be uncomfortable that you're touching them because you didn't ask them. Uh, Again, that's a big ask for to do in the moment. And it's hard to do with people who don't have a lot of good language processing, but those are the ideas that you want to convey with your tone, your affect, your body language. You want it to be as supportive and encouraging as you can while also limit setting. And so that might involve stepping between somebody or, you know, helping guide somebody away from touching uh, another person when they don't have permission to do that. Uh, And as much as possible in that moment, you also want to uh, begin a conversation about successful ways to, to fulfill those needs it seems like you really like this person. Let's talk with them about how you can get to know them. Uh, so again, you're not, uh, you're trying to avoid creating a lot of um, shame around those motivations. Uh, as much as you can, you want to keep the language simple, uh, use visuals to support the things that you said. Again, in the moment, that's not always possible. Um, But I think another part, particularly with somebody of of this kind of profile, is that you want to be really flexible about doing this again and again and again. You're going to have to repeat these conversations. You're going to have to repeat these these interventions when somebody is invading space or touching. And you want to work really hard to try to avoid getting fatigued and judgmental or despondent that the person is not learning quickly enough. because I think it's better to take the position that they are learning. They just have a hard time controlling this stuff because it's, uh, these are powerful feelings. Um, it also helps uh, in the, in this particular case, it helps to create 
uh, more co-ed peer interactions where you can get peers who are providing more uh, unfiltered feedback on somebody's behavior. A lot of times adults who are feeling invaded tend to, uh, to not give compelling enough feedback that they don't like a certain behavior. Uh, and then as much as you can provide parent uh, coaching and support around these, uh, these things. So after the fact, you know, when you're not in the moment of these happening, you want to make sure that with somebody like this, you're having an ongoing discussion about sexuality that's really focused on the positive, that celebrates uh, this person's interest in other people, that celebrates and validates their desire to be connected, even to be physically connected to other people, and that focuses on healthy ways to pursue them. Uh, it's also true that for the person who has a hard time managing their impulses or who, you know, tends to touch people without permission that you may need to continue to really closely monitor and support that. And that may mean, you know, staying physically close to somebody to be able to intervene or to preview, uh, with the targets of their, their affection to help those people respond in ways that are successful. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this. How do we reduce the risk of people being either victims or perpetrators of sexual mistreatment? Um, and as we talked about before, there's a lot of parts of somebody's profile that can lead to pretty significant consequences. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, there are, I think there are ways at every developmental level to run these risks. Uh, I have certainly experienced or encountered people who um, are very independent, who are very well educated, uh, who become victimized. Uh, and I've supported people who, um, you know, have, are still very much dependent, even as adults are dependent on caregivers, don't have a lot of um, functional language, don't have a lot of functional independence they too can become victims. Um, and both of those categories can become perpetrators as well. You can go to that next slide, I think. Okay, so um, there's a couple of examples here. I probably won't go into all of these, but um, I think this one, uh, yeah, this one surprised me when it happened. And, and this was now this particular situation happened to me probably 10 years ago when I had, you know, I'd been doing the work, but I hadn't encountered this situation yet. Uh, so this is a 27 year old male. He had a driver's license. He'd had a couple of jobs in the past. Uh, he had not gone to college, but he had finished high school. Uh, he was a very socially phobic person. Didn't like to go out a lot, uh, struggled to meet new people, was uncomfortable in, in new situations, but was actually very social with people with whom he was comfortable with. Uh, a lot of executive functioning challenges, uh, would lose a lot of things, forget a lot of things, would have a hard time sort of planning aspects of his life. Uh, and he had a very active online life. Uh, and what happened is uh, he met somebody online, and this is all while he's also in our community, and so we didn't actually know about this online relationship until afterwards. He met a woman online, he interacted with her for several months, and then suddenly he got in his car and he drove, uh, you know, 800 miles away to meet this woman, and he ended up marrying her, and 
moving in with her to try to help her raise her three-year-old child. Uh, so when he left, he had no means to make money. He left without his medication. He didn't know how to, uh, renew his prescriptions. Um, the adult caregiver that he lived with didn't know where he had gone. Uh, and so he was, he was basically AWOL for about a month. Uh, and then he came back and he ended up needing a lot of help from his, um, from his caregivers, ultimately, uh, divorce, getting divorced from this person, uh, and terminating that relationship there. I won't go all into all the details of how challenging that relationship was. Um, but to me, it was really an interesting case. I mean, it was a, it was a poignant situation as well because he had both found this connection and then organized himself in a way that nobody really believed that he could organize himself to drive across country and move and marry and do all these things. Um, and at the same time, he was putting himself at severe risk and potentially victimizing this other woman as well. Um, so, um, yeah, there were a lot of elements to uh, the victim piece here. Uh, he put himself at financial risk. Um, they were engaging in, um, they were sexually active in ways that were probably not well protected or well thought out. Uh, and there was another, there was an ex-husband in the picture that actually ended up being a physical kind of threat. So it ended up being something of a dangerous situation. Um, and the other risk, again, more of an emotional one, is it really worsened this guy's perception of in-person relationships and marriage and sexual, uh, contact. He, uh, retreated for a long period of time after this back into the world of online relationships, uh, and was, um, you know, very averse to connecting with people in person after that. So, um, before this particular crisis, so we were talking about a, a guy who, um, really doesn't, uh, meet people easily, connect with people easily. So what we were doing just generally and ongoing was trying to help him develop more meaningful, secure relationships with, um, with women in our safe community. Uh, so helping him develop peer relationships with both other men and women, but also developing relationships with, um, women on our staff. Um, and so just helping him develop the ability to build relationships with other people and at times people of the opposite sex, that was, uh, I think a really therapeutic component of his program. Uh, also helping him get more physically comfortable. Um, and that first required helping him learn to advocate for his sensory needs, whether it was around touch or noise or number of people in the room or those kinds of things. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, really helping him get better at understanding his own sensory needs. Um, and then just generally supporting his self-confidence and ego development um, in that, Although we didn't know it ahead of time, I think that turned out to be a really important piece uh, in, or, you know, your sense of self is a lot of what either leads you to, to drive off across country and meet somebody or not. You know, if you have a strong sense of yourself and that there might be other people you can meet in the world, maybe you're less likely to go off with the first one that you connect with. Um, during the situation, uh, it was tricky because for the most part, he was 
he was out of contact with, with uh, he was completely out of contact with his caregiver and he was in only minimal contact with us. Uh, but we did the best that we could to be non-judgmental and to be supportive of what he was doing, uh, to help him, uh, to give him advice that helped him to be safe, whether it was, you know, reminding him about protected sex or helping him understand what might be going on with some of the other people in this situation, but ultimately not judging him for having done what he had done. Um, and that ended up being really useful is that he came to see us as, um, a useful resource as opposed to somebody who was judging or criticizing him for the things that he had done. Uh, when he returned, uh, really it was about uh, reconnecting him to our environment and helping him begin to build more uh, complete and durable relationships with people in person, sort of to counter that incomplete relationship that he had had. And really we spent a lot of time debriefing on what had happened with an emphasis on what had gone well. <clears throat> it wasn't really necessary to emphasize all the mistakes that he'd made, um, but helping him see that there had been a lot of things that had really gone well, that ended up being, uh, I think, really helpful in getting him to understand that uh, it was a matter of degrees in which he had made errors, not the entire venture. Um, and then we were able to use that crisis to address topics that he had previously wanted to avoid talking about. It became easier to talk more specifically about, uh, you know, the idea of sex and romantic relationships, because now he had some experience with it and some challenging experiences with it that we were able to talk about more easily. Um, you can skip on through to this next one. Um, and I won't go into this one uh, as much, but um, I wanted to talk about uh, this young woman uh, just a little bit. This is a woman who, um, similar to the case I just described, was somebody who, when you first met her, uh, you might not necessarily be attuned to some of the underlying developmental challenges that she had. Um, but she was a very outgoing a uh, very appealing kind of personality. Uh, and she was with her parents at a fitness club, uh, was waiting for them outside, and a guy pulled up and invited her into his car, and she got in and drove off with him. Um, and uh, it was a guy that she knew from high school, but knew barely. Uh, and they ended up almost having sex before the guy realized that there was something there was something not quite right about the situation from, from uh, his standpoint. So it was potentially a much more catastrophic situation than it ended up being. Uh, but I think the point is, is that uh, this young woman had a lot of strengths, a lot of capability. And because of that was actually a, a significant kind of risk. And it was challenging for the parents because uh, they were strong advocates of this young woman's independence and wanting her to be, independent and successful. And yet this was a case where suddenly the risks of that were very, very uh, evident. Uh, I think the, the, the risks are obvious. Uh, certainly this was, um, this whole experience triggered a conversation about birth control. Um, and, you know, you can see the potential, uh, you know, uh, potential for her to be a victim in this case. Um, and again, the interventions, I think, are pretty similar to the to the case I just uh, expressed, that building strong, secure relationships with other people 
uh, as a way to help this young woman develop a better understanding of limit setting um, and helping her understand uh, what some of the risks and uh, risks and relationships are and being able to read those cues better um, and staying non-judgmental because like most of us, uh, this young woman was very sensitive to the fact that she had done something wrong uh, and didn't really want to fully accept that and was really desirous of connecting uh, with a romantic partner. Uh, so she actually felt in many ways that she had been successful. Um, so again, strength-based debrief after, try to emphasize what had gone well uh, from the parent standpoint. Also, putting more clear limits in place about what she could and couldn't do as somebody living in their home. Um, and uh, similar to the last case, uh, this sort of near disaster made it easier for everybody in her life to begin to address these topics more directly because it was clear how uh, what the potential dangers were. Okay, so I just want to touch on this last uh, core idea here, um, how to help everybody around an individual become an effective support. Um, because sex is such, uh, you know, such an integral part of our lives, um, it's, um, I think it's really helpful to have everybody involved, uh, whether you're nine years old or 29 years old, the people around you, I think you want to be on the same page uh, about these kinds of issues. In this particular case uh, that I'm going to talk about, I think it was really interesting because a lot of the goals and values of the people supporting the individual were very different. So our the people at our organization tended to have a very different set of values than uh, the church uh, the church community uh, that this family uh, attended and uh, some of the outside counselors they had worked with. Um, so um, it's, you, you want to try to keep the individual at the center of the process uh, and that can be challenging for a team when everybody's not on the same page. But to go into this particular individual, this was um, Again, a very capable young man in many ways, ultimately um, has gone on to college, although at the time had not started college. Uh, relatively self-reflective, poor impulse control, uh, poor emotional modulation and regulation, and a tendency to, yeah, to feel bad about himself, to get depressed or, you know, feel bad about failing a lot. But he also had a lot of very specific physical sexual urges. This is somebody who... Um, in his words, just, you know, wanted to get laid. This is a guy who wanted to have sex. He experienced pleasure from sexual stimulation. Uh, and because he was a pretty competent person, he ended up uh, hiring a prostitute um, and uh, having sex with her in his, uh, in his home. Uh, and later on in another incident actually was caught uh, masturbating in a restaurant, uh, in a restroom at his work. Uh, and was fired from that. Um, and so to me, in some ways, uh, this was a very poignant case because this is a really capable guy who clearly just wanted connection, uh, but who also was having very specific sexual desires that uh, I think most of us would probably argue were pretty, you know, within the realm of the understandable and normal, to use that word. Um, uh, but the risks were great. He was 
again, a risk of potentially being a perpetrator, but also certainly being victimized. Um, and the particular challenge in this case is that the people around him all had different ideas about the best way to support him. Uh, his uh, church community was, uh, and I'm oversimplifying, and I don't mean to be maligning the church community in any way, but just sort of the difference in the basic approach is that he had one sort of more conservative set of people who were tending to look at his behavior as evidence of a possible sexual addiction. Uh, and he had, you know, um, our community, which was maybe a little bit more clinically focused, was tending to look at his sexual interests as a function of his developmental capacities and his poor impulse control and his strong desire for certain kinds of stimulation. And his parents were kind of caught in the middle. They just didn't want him to get in trouble and didn't want him to get a sexually transmitted disease, you know, and wanted him to launch successfully. Uh, so it became a little bit challenging to uh, streamline and unify the messages that this young man was hearing because he was getting a lot of different advice and he wasn't really sure what kind of advice to follow or which framework to put around his, um, around his actions. Um, so before this particular crisis, um, that establishment of the team around the individual is, is really important. Understanding all the different, uh, components that go into somebody's life. And in this case, this young man <coughs> had a lot of really active, dedicated people, people in his life, which was great. Um, and an important part of that is that he was bought in. So just in terms of his, his overall development and his, uh, his efforts to build romantic relationships with people, he was bought into the fact that he needed support and wanted support. Um, but what became really important is to try to have everybody on that team communicating in an inclusive and respectful way. Um, during the, as all of these, uh, these couple of incidents came to light, uh, it became really important for everybody around this person to be communicating regularly. Um, one, to so that everybody kind of got uh, the same story, so that everybody was working from the same story. Um, because, you know, like the proverbial, uh, you know, people who are touching different parts of the ele elephant and coming up with a different construct of what it is that they're experiencing, um, it was really hard to get everybody to really um, look at the big picture of what had actually happened. Um, and then in the aftermath, again, very similar to things I've said before, it was really important to focus on a lot of the strengths-based uh, breakdown of what had happened. Um, and then with the team itself, establishing some shared goals that ended up having to be maybe broader than was ideal uh, in the sense a broad goal being we want this young man to stay safe. Whereas a more specific goal might have been for somebody, we want him not to sleep with prostitutes or we want him not to be sexually active or whatever it happened to be. But what we at least were able to do was establish some broad shared goals about autonomy and about safety and about legality. Um, and those things, the group, the team was really able to come together to support this young man around. Um, 
this guy was somebody who could talk about his experience a lot and wanted to talk about his experience a lot. So a lot of the support was really a, a kind of a talk therapy sort of thing, uh, helping him to think about himself in that context um, and begin to think of himself as a more successful person than he maybe had been. Okay. So, um, yeah, if you um, want to throw in any questions or comments at, at, at this point, that would be great. I think, um, but just to summarize, you know, it's obviously a delicate subject. Um, it's probably not something that people with young children are thinking about maybe as much as they could be. Um, there are certainly a lot of dangerous things that can happen as people become sexually aware and sexually active, but there's also a real wonderfulness to that part, that, that development in somebody's life. And I think that's the, the bigger picture piece to hang on to is that you're trying to help your children or the people that you work with become the most complete, connected, capable of relationship sort of people that they can be. Um, but those individual differences and the social emotional capacities really matter uh, in figuring out how to support somebody's sexual expression and sexual thinking. And then at the end of the day, it isn't really about behavior. It is about relationships and supporting somebody's growth through that. Yeah, um, all such good information. Um, just, just to tie it up, I know um, a couple of things you brought up when in the course that I took that we haven't discussed here that I wouldn't mind touching on just for a few minutes because I'm running late myself, is that... Um, way to support the children at school. So you gave an example earlier that that might have been a little uh, startling to hear for some listeners about a female who was trying to self-stimulate during the day. And you mentioned how to support her in that way. And I mm -hmm. imagine people were thinking, what does he mean? He supports her in that way. So maybe can you give some some examples of that? And you also in the class I took had given some examples of males as well who right. maybe during the school day might have an erection or something and how you give them the privacy and respectfully right. help them through that without being inappropriate. So if you can just end off on that, that I think that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's possible that some of the ways that we handle this will also be startling to people. Um, but I would say on the front end that, um, these are tricky issues. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard to figure out how to handle this. Um, but what I would say is that uh, first and foremost, the, the, I think the most important thing that we do in this, in our school context and that any school can do is to develop as many, to have as many people develop trusting, secure relationships with the individual as possible. Because the more, um, the more, a child or a young person trusts the people they're around, the easier it's going to be to help them manage their behavior. Uh, second, I think it's really important to avoid shame as much as possible. You are not going to get much long-term behavior change out of shaming people. Um, and I think that's our instinct as a parent is to be so horrified by what we see that we'll immediately say, what are you doing? Stop that. Right. <laughs> and it's right away that, that induces shame. Sure. Well, and it's embarrassing and mm -hmm. yeah, probably none of us 
will ever be totally comfortable with the public expression of very personal and private behaviors. Um, so, uh, and I'm not really advocating that, that we get to that point, but the reality is with some of the people that I've worked with is that, um, it's very, very difficult to actually physically control their behavior. And so, for example, we're a program that just philosophically tries very hard not to put our hands on people, not to restrain people or physically stop them. And that's, I don't mean to be sort of high-minded or high and mighty about that, but just as a, as a general approach, you want to respect people's autonomy. At the same time, when people are engaging in behavior that is not public, that needs to be private, um, how to create privacy for that person becomes a real challenge. So some of the things that we do with this young woman and that we've done with some other people too is when we are struggling to get them to stop what they're doing or to even go to the bathroom to, to do that, and generally we'll talk about the bathroom as a safe place, although I think you can make an argument that any bathroom in a public institution or a, you know, a that's not your home probably isn't an appropriate place to do that either. But if you had to choose between the hallway and the classroom or the bathroom, you choose the bathroom. But when it's hard to get somebody to go to the bathroom, what we have done is taken um, gymnasium mats and created a private space around that person uh, and tried to be supportive of their need to be that way, emphasizing of, their need to do it privately and our need to create that privacy for them. And so then, so we're creating physical barriers and moving people out of rooms when we can't get people to stop that. And at the same time, gradually helping people to label that behavior as what it is as private time or, you know, as a time when they're trying to make themselves feel good. Uh, and, you know, all while that kind of, privacy creation and kind of containment is happening. We're also working in other avenues. You know, we're working to help the parents support the child and being able to get those needs met at home. So we're not inadvertently, you know, uh, if a child feels uncomfortable doing it at home, so they're doing it at school, we want to try to shift that back to home. We're working with a child's uh, physician if they take medication to try to support, you know, impulse control um, and then when they're not in the middle of those behaviors, we're also supporting them in beginning to understand how other people perceive them as well. And that, again, that's very developmentally specific in the sense that, um, and in the case of this young girl, she is able to hear that other, that it, that what she does makes other people uncomfortable. She's not yet able to manage her behavior because of that. Uh, so we're trying to both create the privacy, support her in understanding the effects she might be having on relationships, and help her understand that that what she's that the thing the behavior that she's engaging in is going to be challenging in a lot of environments in which she's doing it. And I think the point needs to be made because there could be parents out there that are very uncomfortable with this kind of thing going on in a school that we say that it's not about condoning or not condoning. It's about okay. supporting a child's developmental process. They're mm -hmm. going to have these urges and they're going to be expressed in some way or form. For and sure. we're thinking of the best way to support that <coughs> development in conjunction with the family. You're having these discussions with the family too. 
I think all of us would be happier to have a school environment that is mostly free of explicit sexual stimulation. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not something that we're really trying to encourage. And certainly when behaviors are very, very challenging, even a school that's as sort of whatever flexible and progressive as ours is still going to sometimes call parents to take their child home, you know, to kind of just stop for the day and not do it. Um, but the longer term goal is to help that person begin to regulate that behavior better. And I don't think there's, you know, you don't just want to be in a position of forcing somebody to stop because they're not going to get better at developing the self-control later on. Um, and I absolutely agree. This is not about condoning or not condoning. Um, because probably this young woman is going to engage in this behavior no matter what anybody thinks about it. Uh, but she is capable of developing relationships with other people, and those relationships can gradually be used to help her develop more self-control. Uh, so again, I don't mean to, I, I totally agree that, you know, people can have different values on this. And for, for, from my standpoint, it's about practically how are we going to create the most self-control the most respectfully and the most quickly that we can. Um, and it's, it's not always easy. Absolutely. And I think, um, and that's important. And I think it's important for our listeners to take all of that in and understand um, that we're dealing with a lot of harsh realities when we're supporting children that have um, impulse issues and we're figuring out how to best support it and you and I certainly both feel that the developmental individual differences relationship-based model, the DIR model for time provides a good framework within which to help support those developmental capacities to, like you said, help children manage these situations for themselves. And as they get into youth and adolescence and uh, on into adulthood. Well, and you know, one thing I would come back to is this idea that, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that the kids that we know do can be challenging. Um, and at the same time, those, those behaviors or those ways of thinking or those ways of being are often also like what makes our, those people so wonderful and particular and special. Um, so, you know, if somebody gets, so incredibly excited and fired up about dinosaurs or Legos or whatever. I accept that those things can be difficult to manage those intense interests, but they're also a lot of what drives somebody's learning and being and their personality. And so to me, it makes perfect sense that if somebody likes to jump on the trampoline three hours a day, that maybe as puberty hits, they're also going to seek out other kinds of stimulation in relatively extreme ways. And that's challenging, but that's also a part of what makes them who they are. And, you know, ultimately can be a really powerful force for good and a wonderful thing. It's the reality is, is that, yeah, we're supporting people who, who don't fit into the, the, the middle part of the bell curve a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for, for taking the time to share all this information with us. And uh, listeners, you can go to affectautism.com. Uh, I believe the title of the blog is And Then Comes Puberty. You can look it up, and there'll be some references um, and links to uh, and if you have any questions or, or comments. And um, 
hopefully we'll get to speak with you again soon, Dave. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.